2: The following podcast contains explicit language.
3: It's Thursday, April 20th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And warning, you are about to enter the no shit zone. Bill O'Reilly was a serial harasser. No shit. The $13 million in hush money Fox and O'Reilly paid to the women he allegedly harassed was not enough to cover up the problem. No shit. Bill O'Reilly still claims after his firing that he was the victim, the victim of secularist media elites. No shit. In his new book, Killing Bill, in which the forces of liberal Democrat politicians align to take down your humble correspondent, Bill O'Reilly details the way that he threatened the secularist progressive agenda. The folks know it's true. That's why Bill had to be taken down. I'll give you the last word. And the last word were like all these other words, no shit. Now, I have a long history with Bill O'Reilly. I first noticed the guy in 1999. And when I was with the public radio program on the media, I did a story on him. The next year, went to Fox headquarters during the time of the Florida recount. I interviewed him. I sat in on staff meetings. I sat in the control room during a taping. I talked to his producer, Bill Shine. I talked to O'Reilly at length in his office. And after the report came out, there were elements in it he did not like, including this.
1: Everybody tries to label me, and and I don't like it. I'm a registered independent politically, and I'm a journalist who looks at life the way it is, not the way I want it to be.
3: In reality, O'Reilly is not a registered independent. He's been a registered Republican since 1994. When this information came to light after our original interview, O'Reilly said he made a mistake when registering to vote in Nassau County, Long Island six years ago. But records show that he's voted in at least five elections since then, each time being confronted with his party registration, which he never took any steps to change. Now, a newsletter called The Hotline, which a lot of media people read back then, it was like a proto-blog, reported on what I just reported on, the registration that he always denied. And soon thereafter, O'Reilly got back to The Hotline. Here's what he said. I will quote the hotline item. It was titled, Thus I Refute Pesca." FNC's, that's Fox News Channel's, Bill O'Reilly responds to NPR's Mike Pesca's profile, in quotes, alleging he knowingly misstated his party registration. First of all, there's O'Reilly, first of all, I've never heard of NPR's Mike Pesca. He never called me. So when they ran a profile of me, the first I heard about it was in the hotline. I always thought profiles would have something to do with profile subjects, but I never heard from NPR. Let me interrupt Bill's comments from the time. Just to play a snippet more tape from that on the media profile.
1: The O'Reilly Factor TV show and the uh, O'Reilly Factor book is basically the first national presentation on television, and I think in nonfiction literature, that was written expressly for working Americans. That's who I represent.
3: When you add the part in your book about how when you double dated with Donald Trump, how do you think your audience is going to react to that as you as this champion of the working class? If a working class guy like me
1: makes it, they're happy for me. And I think I have an obligation to help them as well with the knowledge that I've accumulated.
3: Now, setting aside the pomposity and I think the forgotten to history double date where two legendary Romeos could have traded tips on pitching woo. I want you to note one aspect of what you just heard, that exchange between me and O'Reilly that it was an exchange between me and O'Reilly. I was sitting right next to the guy in his office for quite a long time. So when he blasted me for never having met him or called him for comment, it just seemed crazily brazen. I kind of thought, well, he could get in trouble for that or for this next part. So I'll continue the quote from the hotline. Is Bill still talking? Now, their accusation on my voting record is simply a lie, and I'm not surprised since we've done a number of stories on NPR's left-leaning ways and the fact that they get money from all the taxpayers, not just liberals. So in my opinion, this profile was a hatchet job. Here's the truth. When I registered in Nassau County to vote in 1994, there was no box for an independent. I left all the boxes empty. Somehow I was assigned a Republican status. Now I want you to know when reporting this story, I went to the Nassau County Board of Elections. Voter registrations are a public record. I checked O'Reilly, and O'Reilly checked Republican. His check mark was next to Republican. There was a box for quote, I do not wish to enroll in party. He didn't check that box, he checked Republican, just as surely as he checked under citizen by birth, yes. So I thought there'd be a price to pay for all this. I wasn't so naive as to think the bill would be fired. Nor was I so idealistic as to think that a TV interviewer couldn't try to get away with it. But it seemed to me like Bill's lie was really poorly crafted. And yet, there were no consequences to any of it. The hotline ran a couple more items as if he and I were in a spat. An author writing a book on O'Reilly's lies called me up, had me send over a copy of the registration. The author printed it in that book. That man, that author, is now a U.S. senator. Mitch McConnell. Now it was Al Franken. That was Al Franken. But the thing that O'Reilly was doing, lying, and then lying about lying, that would be a mainstay throughout his career. He was routinely caught making claims about statistics or misquoting people or lying a lot about his biography, yet he never corrected any of it. He would claim NPR wouldn't interview him. I just interviewed him. He was on fresh air, but he stormed off. Two years ago, he was caught lying about being in the Falklands war zone. He wasn't there. There were literally dozens. There were maybe hundreds of other incidents over the years, and nothing happened to him. Bill, for years, in fact, would proudly claim on the air that the factor has never had to make a retraction. Eventually, they made a retraction about something, so he stopped saying that. But he would every so often say, I got this wrong, and then say, but we've never made a retraction. That strikes me as just, I don't know, narcissistic bordering on psychopathic to lie about never having lied when it was easy to check that all of that was a lie. Eventually, Bill O'Reilly became somewhat respected even by left-leaning usual callers of bullshit like Jon Stewart, who did a pay-per-view debate with the guy. And to give O'Reilly his due, he was, though I think a didactic monologist, he was an exciting interviewer, an unfair interviewer, but it was good spectacle sometimes to see him bait an overmatched opponent. As Fox expanded over the years into Crazy Town with Glenn Beck positing alternate realities and Sean Hannity assaulting us with knuckle-dragging nonsense, O'Reilly's occasional acknowledgments of reality played pretty well, and we, in turn, normalized the guy. But let us not forget that O'Reilly was, at his core, a race-baiting, belligerent, propagandistic blowhard. He was finally called to account for one aspect of his personality, the lechery, but never really the lies. On the show today, I bring you proleptic decay and decrepitude that has nothing to do with Bill O'Reilly. It's S-Town. Shit-Town. It's not no Shit-Town. It's the podcast Shit-Town. We have an interview with its host, executive producer and reporter, Brian Reed. It's a long interview. There's no spiel today. Now, if you haven't listened to Shit-Town and you plan to do so, you do not want to hear this interview. It's full of references you might not get and also what the kids call spoilers about what I call the best podcast that I have listened to in a long, long time. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130, that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Do you have a lot of property?
0: Uh, I like to say it's my grandfather's property. It's, a, it's 128 acres.
2: And you grew, you grew up in Woodstock, is that right?
0: Yeah, if you, what's the, this, this whole area needs to be defined. You know, If you look at the demographics charts of the state of Alabama and go over the poorest counties, Bibb County is maybe the fifth worst county to live in. We are one of the child molester capitals of the states. We have just an incredible amount of police corruption. We have the poorest education. We've got 95 churches in this damn county. We'll I have two high schools, no secondary education, and we got Jeepus, because Jeepus is coming. And global warming is a hoax. You know, there's no such thing as climate change and all that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm in an area that just hasn't advanced, for lack of a better word. I don't have to eat a Tums here. Sorry about that. Oh, it's one of those awful cherry-flavored ones. That would be the first one to hop out.
2: Is your stomach bothering you? <laughs> oh, I have
0: constant acid reflux. You know, I've had it all my life.
3: So what, can you tell me, why did you email me? S-Town is a podcast from the producers of Serial and This American Life, reported by Brian Reed. Have you heard about it? If you haven't, don't listen to this interview. We're going to spoil this excellent podcast. It concerns and centers on a compelling, fascinating, contradictory, totally enrapturing central character, John B. McLemore. He is a clock fixer, an autodidact, a Cassandra, a maker of mazes, some more literal than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, the seven episodes of S-Town were for a time the seven most downloaded episodes in iTunes. It's still like a top 10 podcast at least, which is pretty amazing because nothing else in the top 10 was a podcast that existed in a new form for only one day. Brian Reed is here. Hello, Brian. Hey, Mike. So you only existed for one day when you think about it. Like you were only new for one day. Yeah, you very, posted everything on one day. Very ephemeral
2: in that way. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I wasn't even going to start there, but let's do it. Why that format? Why, boom, here it is. Here's everything.
2: I mean, the basic reason is I can't write those those shows every week. I yeah. can never do what Sarah Koenig does and what other people do. And uh, we wanted people to be able to say something, make an allegation against someone. And I didn't want to have to feel compelled to have the other person <laughs> respond to them immediately. Yeah. Th- but I also didn't want... In three
3: weeks, their rebuttal. Yeah. yeah.
2: I wanted to, yeah, to you to know that everybody's going to have their say in this one package. It's one thing. And made it more fun to structure and write that way.
3: It does do a couple other things. One, it takes away, it lessens the primacy of the h- cliffhanger as the thing that gets you from episode to episode. That's and, also true. And yeah. cliffhangers are good, they're fine, they're they're a natural part of storytelling and human beings find them compelling, yet they could also be a crutch and they could also be manipulative. So because they're all cuz all your episodes are there at once, it's less manipulative and I don't think you wrote in such a cliffhanger way.
2: Well, that was also a reason we talked about explicitly when we talked about releasing it this way was, um, and it had to do with wanting it to be like a novel versus modeling it after more like a, a TV series right. where you do feel more compelled to have a cliffhanger. Like we want it to be able to end in more ruminative ways or mm-hmm. quiet quiet ways. Right, and great novels. You know?
3: They'll end, it's, it's the, probably the most common technique to end the chapter by making the reader want to know what happens next but it's not exploitative in a way because you're not parceling it out and addicting them like a rat and yeah. making them need it it felt you better know? it felt yeah. like okay you can
2: just keep moving you know like mm-hmm. this is one stop in the middle of the story
3: let's talk timeline when did you it was a what voicemail call from john in 2014 is that the first contact?
2: No, the first contact actually was late 2012 was Whoa. the general email he wrote to just our like listener email. So he was a listener to This American Life and, um, you know, it came in along with mostly emails. It's not even like a tip email. It was really just like, I hate this story. I love this story. You should do a story about this, a little bit of that. Yeah. But that was late 2012. I brought it to a pitch meeting that we have every week where I was just like, Should I look into this? I mean, he was saying, you know, the subject line was, John B. McLemore lives in Shittown, Alabama. That caught my attention. Good. (laughs) It had a bit of liveliness to it, the email, even in the punctuation, I would say. (laughs) It had a bit of uh, erraticism and liveliness. And, uh, you know, what he was saying was that this place is terrible. Like, you guys should come down and look at some of the stuff that's going on here, namely this alleged murder that's taken place.
3: Was it the craft of the writing? He hooked you and that's why you thought to give it attention or... Was there something about it that made you say, oh, there really could be a murder? Because you probably get a lot of tips from yeah. crazy people all the time. I mean, there was it was
2: certainly had a kind of a liveliness to it. But I do think I was, you know, I was like, if this is true, that's really fucked up. And someone should look into that. Yeah. And so... It was worth a phone call, kind of. You okay. Know? But then it was a long time before we actually got on the phone. We, it, You know, it wasn't a huge priority for me. So like you're saying, you know, yeah. I would like to talk to him, but we went back and forth and I, we kind of lost touch for about a year.
3: Okay. So it lies fallow for a year and then has a up again in a real way.
2: John had emailed me a bit. I think we lost touch for a while. Then he out of the, you know, Woodward came back with an actual like news story that he linked to about pretty bad case of sexual abuse and police misconduct and police abuse right. that had happened in his county bibb county's uh, sheriff's department and when i saw that
3: i was like oh maybe i should just get on the phone with this little, guy put you know? a little more meat on the bone although yeah. as you mentioned in uh shit town s town nothing came of that that didn't connect even to the murder or the non-murder that it was, was just about. i mean that yeah. was that happened so yes, that that yes. that police
2: officer was convicted of a number of charges like human trafficking and sexual abuse and um police misconduct but that was so. But so the, I, it gave a veneer of truth because I couldn't find anything else about what he was saying right. from afar. It just reminded me like,
3: oh, maybe there is maybe this guy does know something during your uh, exchanges on the page and email. Did he sparkle? Did you say, "Ooh, this guy could be a great character
2: uh, in email? Yeah. Yeah. He sent me like a whole introduction to himself um, with pictures.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, told was me he about-
3: tatted in those pictures.
2: Not that I could see. No. Yeah. And I think the pictures were probably from before that. Right. So no, like him working out in the garden. And then he, you know, he listed his interests from, you know, <laughs> like, he, you know, I unprompted. He sent me. I didn't need an introduction from him. <laughs> you know, I thought I was talking to a guy who was going to give me information about a murder. And then he started telling me about his life, even in the next email to me.
3: And I, I get yeah. the sense that he was excited to have you there or a reporter. You specifically, you got along. Was it the case that he was on for you and on for the microphone, but wouldn't be like that for other people? Or did other people, lots of other people, get the full John B. McLemore performance, even if they weren't I mean, he w- I definitely
2: noted that he was on for the microphone sometimes. I think he would do that Yeah, in just, like, non-microphone life, too, you know? Like, I think, he, you know, he had a sense of his life and himself as a character. Like he did. And, you know, he would even refer to things in his life, you you know, quoting Balzac and
3: <laughs> stuff <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> How long until you pretty much decided that the original reason you were there to investigate this murder, that there was nothing there? Because it, it, it pretty much uh, dawns on us or we figure it out by the end of episode two. It actually took me a little while. Just feel, basically, John had me pretty paranoid, like yeah. in terms of contacting
2: authorities of any kind. So I really we were playing things close to the chest. And, like, yeah, I was
3: interested in him, too. But I was trying – I did want to, like, figure out whether this was true or not, for sure. Now, do you think that and the scene in the library where he's really uninterested in doing the real research that would crack the case, do you think that tells you that he knew maybe there really wasn't a murder or it wasn't what he was saying and just wanted to do whatever to keep you there without the – Ruse of, well, I don't know if he knew it was a ruse. He might have known or suspected it, and so therefore he's running into fear to try to (laughs) occupy you and keep you distracted from your stated goal.
2: I think it's possible. I don't think he knew it was totally untrue. Uh I mean, I still have talked to people, like, you know, long after I figured out it wasn't true, I would, you know, be doing an interview about something totally unrelated and mention, like, hey, did you hear about this, like, murder with with this guy? And they're like, oh, yeah, he killed a guy. Like, (laughs) people believed that this was true. Yeah. I think it's totally possible that, like, like, I think that John believed that. I think he could probably have some doubts once in a while. Right. I mean, also, a lot of time had gone by since it happened by that point. So, you know, he certainly had other things going on in his life, too. Like, And then his, his personality was very unpredictable and erratic.
3: So, you know, he could change pretty drastically moment to moment. When you come to this conclusion, this murder or beating uh, didn't result in anyone's death, is there a gap... Where you and the staff question if you really have a story, you know what do you think that story is? And this is of course before you hear that John has killed himself. So what's the time frame like, and what yeah. are you thinking? The story actually, becomes?
2: I I, I kind of came to that pretty firm conclusion only very shortly before John died. Oh. Like, um, I got to a pretty firm place where I was like, I'm pretty sure this is the case, and then called him to talk about it, but still was this was in like early summer that i was like you know really cramming on that but in the meantime i was like doing this work just to figure out about this alleged murder i think i yeah i got to the point where i knew it hadn't happened i called john i had that conversation with him but i was still like wanted to go back down there were a couple loose ends i wanted to finish on that and then i was interested in him and tyler and you know there were other things he had told me about that i was like maybe there's another piece of corruption or something that's worth looking into i was going to try and figure it out and so our last couple conversations among other things were me saying let me finish this thing. It's going to air on July 4th. I'll be down like the next week. And he's like, oh my God, I'm going to have to get the housekeeper over here and there's fleas everywhere and it's going to be so fucking hot. Such a shit town in the summer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, you know, just going on but, and on. So that w- I was planning on doing that July 4th. Talked to him a couple weeks before that. And then on June
3: 22nd, he killed himself. June 22nd. At that point, whatever this bigger story would be, you obviously say, well, I need to go down. I need to go to the memorial service. I need to, you know, try to piece together why he did this.
2: I I wasn't even that far ahead. I mean, I was really like the memorial service was the week of this other story. I just wanted to go. Like, I honestly didn't know if anyone would be there. Like I, I thought that maybe just Tyler Goodson and his family would be there. I, you know, I did not know. Um, I didn't know John had any community or friends who would be there. And it just, I wanted to go, you know? And you know, I learned that he actually did have a lot of (laughs) relationships in his life that were far closer than he was with me but I didn't know, and regardless, I wanted to go. And, I, you know, I was wondering what we would do after, but I my, I wasn't, like, as evolved in my thinking about the story yet at that
3: point. Yeah. And so, as you are compelled to uh, continue reporting the story, revelations happen to you. Um, from what I understand, you tell me if this is right or wrong, the story as we hear it more or less tracks the story as you come to understand it. More or less. I right? Mean, yeah, it's not... Perfect, but a lot of the, several of the storylines for sure. Right. But was one of those things the revelation about Mad Hatter disease? And it did you report the whole thing and then somehow? Uh, get tuned into this possible explanation. Yes and no. Okay. So
2: I was talking to John's friends. He'd left this list behind of of friends that he wanted contacted, and and after he died, and um, I started talking to people off that list, and many of them were clock customers and horologists of different stripes, um, people who study time and timepieces, and a couple of them started mentioning this fire gilding process that involved mercury and mentioning Mad Hatter's disease, but it was like one thing that was being mentioned in interviews about many other things, and so. After a couple times, I was like, let me Google that. I Googled Mad Hatter's disease. I saw this list of symptoms that seemed to describe John. And I did do some reporting at that point where I talked to several experts. And and that was so that was like 2015. And then talking with my editor, Julie Snyder, we kind of put it to the side because we were like, I'm not sure we're going to be able to get further than a speculation on mm-hmm. this, basically. And we put it aside for like a year and a half. And like we we're like, maybe we're going to mention it in the story. But we didn't picture that it would be a huge thing. And then my, our fact checker and researcher, Ben Phelan, who's like much more to science than I am, <laughs> um, in the course of just fact checking, like one of the small references to the processes John was doing, not mad hatters and, you know, specifically he started talking to some mercury experts and started talking to them about what John was doing. And he's coming to me and saying like, he's like, I've never been in this position before, but like, you don't know for sure. Cause we don't have a test, but I feel like it's very safe to, raise this as a possibility like these experts are all saying like it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't be poisoned in some way um and so it was really at his insistence and and, you know ben's research that brought it back and that was like in the last month or less before it came out maybe the last two
3: weeks so you put you put this out there and i think most listeners would say well that's certainly a plausible explanation do you think that's the probable explanation for some of his behavior for some of it, but I definitely think there's many other things going on in life. Yeah, we can life. never just attribute a suicide yeah, to I think he also had, so you know,
2: other mental health issues probably. You know, he, you know, he was on medication at one point prescribed by a doctor earlier in his life. You know, was also just a person who was lonely. Like, there were many other things going on. So, you know, who knows? It's an alchemy of things that are they're that playing into his personality.
3: Now, John collected these characters. Tyler was one. And the guy who lives in New York now, what's his Michael name? Michael Fuller. Fuller yeah. is another. These guys he tried to save. And in yeah. one case, with Fuller's case, it seems like he did save. Fuller says so. He really yeah. helped him through his addiction. I was thinking, did you serve that role for him? I decided no. I don't think you were a character he tried to save. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. But were you, you were an amanuensis. You were his confessor. Did he have those? I mean, he's such a brilliant guy. He'd want to put his thoughts into someone who um, could really appreciate Other confessors? That's interesting. Like like someone yeah, I mean, someone he... of a, who he respected, not just Tyler, not just mm-hmm. the guy at the tattoo parlor. Maybe one of his professors. I don't know. Maybe a town clerk figure. I, I don't know.
2: I mean, I think some of the friends of, you know, his friends, you know, was kind of like that. I think his professor certainly, I mean, he really respected his professor, Tom Moore, a lot. Some of his urologist friends, for sure, like I think he would talk about different things with and and feel met on his level. He did write a number of, and I think have phone conversations with a number of, of writers and journalists that he liked, like who wrote about kind of climate change and decline in society and things like that. Are
3: saying he was a pen pal with Al Gore? Is this one
2: for- <laughs> I don't know if he wrote Al Gore. He might have. Yeah. He, there's this guy, Guy McPherson, uh-huh. who's like a former professor, I think, who's written a lot about basically how we're screwed and you know i think at one point kind of ran even like a off the grid commune and stuff john wasn't really into him and he would reach out to these people and, and and write them and stuff and i don't have a good sense of how like big the relationship was but i would be on email sometimes with different people like that yeah and the emails would range from, like, thoughts about oil to, like, I just heard some, like, depraved sexual act described at the gas station. He's like, I'm going to get a recorder so you guys can hear this. <laughs> like, it's me and the town clerk and the town attorney
3: and, you know, this guy who wrote a book in Arizona, <laughs> you know? Um there is, uh, I guess it's a criticism. It's usually couched in My God, I loved it. It was brilliant, yet it was a violation of privacy. This is a criticism I've read. I'll ask you about that, but here's what I think. I'll tell you what I think first. I appreciate that. I, I know you do. I think that anyone who writes uh, that you betrayed a trust or violated privacy is actually paying you an unbelievably high compliment because almost all of journalism is a betrayal of privacy or some sort of trust. I mean, any great work that really reveals a person that's not an autobiography does that, and it's just that we don't notice when it's that you say you try to make this a, a novel, but when we know the guy and it's in our ear, it just the impact of that emotionally is big, and so I think that's what's driving some of the criticism that oh I can't believe his uh, trust was violated it's because you made the character the real person into someone that we care about so much that we'd really worry about his trust being violated that's my theory Get your off I the appreciate
2: hug. that thanks yeah. um But what would you say? I mean, I think
3: I think um,
2: I believe there's the same amount of murkiness and weirdness in this journalistic effort that there in any journalistic effort. That's actual reporting. I don't know. Yeah, there's something in the criticism where it's like he didn't understand exactly what the story would be. I have never done a story with anyone who's living where I can describe to them exactly what the story is going to be at the beginning. There's no point in doing the story if you can do that. That is the point of, of doing especially long form reporting. Is to come to understand the story and understand more than you know, and to make something at the end that you could not have predicted at the beginning.
3: I don't know, and possibly yeah. even to reveal something about characters that the characters didn't know, might not be comfortable with, might push back.
2: Yeah, um, and of course yeah. you're always weighing that, and you're weighing the consequences of it, and you're talking to that. You know, like there are everyday things that you deal with when you're reporting, especially about real people. And we did the same thing. You know, like, there are many things we left out. We were weighing all sorts of information that we got. I learned way more than, you know, is in the story. And then you make those decisions whether someone's alive or not. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a different understanding of journalism. Like, the premise of that question, like, points at a different understanding of journalism than I have, basically.
3: Do you think there's gold there?
2: Do I think there's gold? I cannot speak any more on that than I've said in the podcast.
3: Do you want there to be gold there?
2: Um, I mean, Do you be- want Tyler to get some sort of windfall? No, I'm am I'm, I'm above that. <laughs> that 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 argument. I I like Tyler and I like Rita a lot. I like yeah. both of them. Yeah. And I think you know, I disagree with things that both of them are doing. I certainly, have, you know, was sympathizing with Tyler certainly like at the beginning when John died and you know, he was telling me this bad stuff was happening. But as I got to know Rita, I told, you know, I also totally saw from her side and I hope that that comes through in the story as well. That's what I was trying to do. And I like her. She's funny and I could totally see where she was coming from. And you make a the case that
3: perhaps in some ways that uh his mom is better off uh with rita that he wasn't the john wasn't the best caretaker
2: yeah i think that i mean i don't know for sure because i really didn't get deep into his relationship with his mother you know when when he was living but i think it's completely i think it could totally be true and i visited with his mom since he died you know and saw where she was living and spent some time with her and told her about the story and did an interview with her that i didn't ultimately use but she seemed good and to be grieving like, you know, but also she's very funny. She's got John. Everyone has told me she had John's wit before the dementia got worse. And she still is very funny and biting, even with, you know, signs of dementia.
3: Can you update us on how any of the characters in your story reacted to the podcast?
2: Tyler and his family all listened, I think, in the first day. You know, I talked. To, I've been ch- chatting with Tyler's mom who said she she loved it, thought it was very honest. And Tyler said he really appreciated it. It seems to have also been very emotional for him. Um, And, it, you know, we've stayed in touch and I think he's having ups and downs just emotionally, you know, in terms of I don't know. I can't imagine being that close to someone and then hearing their voice in that way and hearing them presented in a story this way. Like, I'm sure it's both gratifying and upsetting. And, you know, that's the sense I get of what he's going through with that.
3: Any other any other of the minor characters weigh in?
2: There was a, in the beginning there like I was seeing some people in town before they'd heard it. Yeah. When they saw the name shit town and that it may be involved in murder. People were saying some stuff in the local media, uh, you know, like the town lawyer and the mayor and stuff about how like they wish they hadn't taken part and all this stuff. And, you know, I wrote them and immediately was like, you guys should really listen. Um, You know, like, I think you have the wrong idea about what this is. And I sent them like a couple reviews of it. You know, as soon as they listen, I've talked to them and, you know, they're like, oh, I totally loved it. And it was great. And I really think you, like, got the town very well. A lot well. of people said so that. It, it, and and one, A lot of
3: Alabamans, like on Reddit and places. A lot of, Al- yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of people oh, are listening down there. First time I've there. heard about the South reflecting. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: Um, one of the more interesting conversations I had was with the guy Bubba, who is in chapter two in the um, tattoo parlor scene, says some very upsetting racist comments. Yeah. I hadn't been in touch with him in a while. I'd let him know about the podcast, but hadn't heard back. I hadn't seen him since that night in 2014. I got a few days after it came out, I had a Facebook message from him saying, call me. Okay. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I gave him a call. I said, hey, Bubba, it's been a little while. How you doing? And he said, um, I'm doing good, man. I uh, listened twice yesterday through. He'd listened to it twice and loved the story and thought it got it john really well and he's just i think he was like i didn't take you seriously like i didn't i didn't know you were, like we're actually like he's like i didn't know you're gonna do this basically like in this way yeah like this big about john and he really appreciated it and then you know he was talking about how people online you know were he, you know who's saying you know my old lady's a little upset because people are online or, or calling me a racist and a white supremacist but you know what like I said those things and you know it's part of who I was and um you know you got both sides of me and he appreciated his portrayal even though he said some pretty terrible things That's very c- terrible things yeah which was a very surreal like he stood you know yeah it felt I don't like that you're this you're happy with this portrayal but I'm also feel gratified that you feel that I treated you fairly you know it was a weird experience to talk to him
3: yeah Well, I mean, (laughs) anytime your subject says you got me right, even if getting him right is showing that he's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It was was very surreal. So what do you expect? Do you expect to ever revisit it in audio form, do some sort of update episode or anything?
2: My inclination is no. I feel very um, satisfied with the package of it, you know? And I like the feeling of listening to it as is. So I don't, I don't, like in my head, it doesn't feel like the kind of thing that keeps going. You know, it feels like a thing that that exists as a thing. I
3: wouldn't recommend that it be something that you kept checking in on. Yeah. But it is, there are unanswered questions. If
2: something was substantial enough, like I'd be open to it. But I'd really want it to be able to, I don't want it to just feel like an update. Like I'd want it to be you know a story a story a
3: beginning middle and end yeah well, listen brian it was it was a great listen uh everyone i know who listened to it once or twice was gratified and they all thought you nailed bubba <laughs> brian reed the reporter behind s-town which we, we could say it's shit town that's what s-town stands for thank you brian thanks mike That's it for today's show. GIST producer Mary Wilson's sundial is inscribed, Tempus volat hora fugit, time flies, the hour flees. Chris Berube, producer of the GIST, has etched into his sundial, Miam vide umbrum tuum vitabis vitam." Look at my shadow and you will see your life. As Steve Liktai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, always says, whilst quoting sundials, Omnis Aqualis Sola Vertute Discrepantes. All the hours are the same. They're distinguished only by good deeds. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has a long title, but a short sundial motto. Sol omnibus lucit." The sun shines for everyone. The gist. Ursus Papa... Ad Solis occasum the sun sets on Papa Bear. Umper de duperu, peru and thanks for listening.